if you would like to turn your Bibles to Revelation. It's been so long that I guess we're blessed that Jesus didn't come back. We might get to go a little further into the book of Revelation. And once again, we'll see how far we actually get. Hopefully you recall we've been looking at the seven churches in Revelation. And in the seven churches, again, there's so many things in, in the book of Revelation and so many things we're actually going to be looking at even today. Different people, different theologians, different individuals disagree on what all the symbolism might be in every situation. But the reality is there are some things that are crystal clear. And those are what I really want to focus on. There are other things that we can speculate on, and, and that's okay. And I'm going to share some of the things that are of my own opinion, and I hope you test them and challenge them and let the Word of God speak to your heart. But when we're speaking of the seven churches, we know that the seven churches were actually really seven churches in Asia. They really did exist at the time that John was on the island of Patmos. It was a real deal. And we know that those churches are sometimes representative of other things depending on who you talk to. For example, when you look at the seven churches, we talked a few weeks back about how some people look at them as different time periods in the history of the church from about 30 AD when the church began up until present time and until Jesus comes back. And it very well could be the case. The different churches represent different things. When I look at the different churches, one of the things that always strikes me is I I think I can see something of me in almost every church. And other churches that we look at that are contemporary, I think, you know, I can see some of that in all these different churches. So I really lean towards the idea that, yeah, they were real churches and they may represent different dispensations. But I think there's something we can learn from every church about our own lives and the churches of today. And as we look through the first five churches, we looked at the church in Ephesus first. And as you go through, one of the patterns you see is Jesus usually gave them a commendation. And for most of them, he followed that commendation up with a reprimand. Two of the churches did not receive a reprimand. At least one of the churches didn't get anything good at all. But each church was spoken to. And the first church we looked at was Ephesus. And as we looked at Ephesus, it kind of became the church that was a loveless church. Other things were right. There were some things that were good things. But to me, it just drives home the fact that if there's not love in God's church, really everything else almost becomes incidental. They were a loveless church. The second church we looked at was the church in Smyrna. Again, he complimented this church and he complimented and and acknowledged that they were a persecuted church. There was no real reprimand for them at all. It's, I understand, I know what you're going through. You're going to be persecuted. And it brings to mind other scriptures that we have that as he was persecuted, as he had to suffer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we're going to be persecuted and we are going to suffer. When Jesus walked the earth, every day was a good day from the perspective of eternity, but there were some days that weren't so good, even for Jesus. We need to understand the persecution. And then the church in Pergamum. Again, there were some compliments. You're growing in these areas. 
but compromise had entered into this church. And I believe this is a real danger in churches today, just as it might have been back then. There is a pressure to compromise. Compromise the, the things that are the essentials of the faith. We cannot compromise what the word of God says. As a church, we feel the pressure sometimes, even as individuals, to kind of see ourselves swaying a little bit towards compromise because whoever we might be talking to is someone we really care about, someone we love, someone we don't want to offend. Maybe we're tempted to compromise just so we don't have to face that, that rejection that we know might come. But we cannot become a church that compromises the essentials of the faith. And there are many things that we can disagree on amongst other churches. And that's okay as long as they are not those essentials of the faith. The church of Pergamum and the church of Thyatira. They're a corrupt church. Corrupt church. Doctrine was corrupted. The people were corrupted. And in the midst of all of these things, we see the faithfulness of God, even in these churches, even as they're being reprimanded. God is reprimanding these churches just as we can receive reprimands. Did you know that? We can be disciplined by God. He will do what it takes to draw us back to himself. When God disciplines or when God reprimands, his goal is always restoration, reconciliation, and bringing us closer to him. We need to embrace that when it happens and understand what God might be doing in our lives. And then there was the church in Sardis. The dead church. And this is a church that's deceptive in the sense that even as Jesus spoke through John about the church that was a dead church, they looked good. They looked good on the outside. They were doing good things. It was kind of like having a shiny car that looks really great. It's all decked out on the outside, and the engine inside is totally shot, or there is no engine. He says, you, you, you look good, but you're a dead church. And today, again, we need to be cautious and aware that those kinds of things happen and can happen. Which brings me to where we left off, the church of Philadelphia. And I want to read a little bit of scripture first describing it in chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, those who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him that overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When we look at this church, 
the church in Philadelphia, there's many things we can notice. But one of the things that we notice right away, I hope, is there was no condemnation. There was no rebuke for this church. Though they are little, though that you are insignificant, though you're not a big deal, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, you maybe not have a lot of wealth in the treasury. You might not have a lot of people in the church, but I know your deeds. You're doing the things that I called you to do. You're a church, and because of this, I've laid an open door for you. Now, there's discussion about the open door in heaven. I think we can understand that when, when the Christ opens the door, it's always open for all who would come and who acknowledge Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. That door is always open. But in the context of this church, it also could mean you're a good church. You might be small, you might be insignificant, but you love me and you love the word. Therefore, I have an open door, opened a door for you to share the gospel, to evangelize, to go and spread the good news. I have opened a door, and what door I've opened, no one can shut. And Jesus is that open door. When we look at the Church of Philadelphia, it's encouraging for us littler churches out in little remote areas. God knows your works. And if we're in line with his word and we have his heart and we love people, he says, I'm going to lay an open door out there for you. And that door cannot be shut by anybody. You have kept my word. Even though you've been persecuted, even though the pressure's been on you, you have kept my word. You've not slipped backwards. You've confessed my name and you lived a life demonstrating the power of the word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. People don't just hear it, they get to see it, the way you live your life in that church in Philadelphia. And then he encourages us. He says, you know what? I know it's been tough, but your faith will be vindicated. It will be vindicated. Hang on, hang in there. I'm not ignoring you. I'm fully aware, and I'm not just going to let it happen, but you're going to be vindicated. There is going to be a reward, and those that have been doing these things, in this case, he specifically talked about those who said they were religious Jews, and he says, no, they weren't. They're the synagogue of Satan. They're liars. And I think when we look at a church like the church in Philadelphia, there's so many things that should encourage us, even as they challenge us, to be like that church. A church that makes a difference, no matter how small or how wealthy or how remote. The church of Philadelphia. And then he makes that amazing promise at the end. He says, I will keep you from the wrath that is coming. I will keep you from it. And even that, what it means exactly, people disagree upon. But I believe that church will be taken up with him before the wrath that's coming, what we normally call the tribulation. I will prevent that. I will keep you from it. And the seventh church is the church in Laodicea. And a lot of people say this is the church. If they talk about the church as representing different times in the life or the history of the church, they say this is the church or this is the time or this is the dispensation that we're living in. In other words, they say, yeah, this is the church today. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, this is starting in verse 14, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, 
neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I know your deeds. You're neither hot or cold. You're lukewarm. And there is so much discussion about what that all means. We do know they've, they've discovered in the area aqueducts, it looks like they brought the water to the city from many miles away. Some people say it was nice, cold, fresh springs, and by the time the water got there, it was lukewarm. Others say it came from hot springs located in this area. And by the time the water got there, it was no longer hot from those hot springs that could be used to give health, but it was lukewarm. I don't know what it means, for sure. But I do notice this. He says they're lukewarm, and he'd rather have them be hot or be cold. You know, there's a lot of Christians that are lukewarm. There's times I question my own life and say, am I lukewarm? Lukewarm meaning I'm just comfortable enough that I really don't notice that I'm no longer hot. It'd almost be better if I was cold because then I'd realize I have a need. We can fall into a comfort zone as Christians that we may not call it lukewarmness, but it's like being lukewarm. We know enough. We're doing a lot of things, kind of slipping into the works thinking that we think we're okay. And God's saying, I wish you were either hot or cold. The good news is, you notice what it says? I am about to spit you out of my mouth. He hasn't done it yet. He doesn't say, I'm going to, even. He says, you're lukewarm. I wish you were hot or cold. I'm about to. And what's he say? Just repent. Even this church, the Laodicean, or the, the Laodicean church, even this church that seems to want nothing to really do with him. He wants them to repent, wants them to turn back to him. And it's interesting when you, a little bit of history about the city of Laodicea. It was famous for a few things. One, it was famous for a fine black wool that they would make fine clothing out of. Black wool, black clothing. They were famous for the banking industry and the great wealth that was in the city. Money prosperity. And there was also a medical school there, and there was actually a famous city for ISAV to treat the, the problems with living in desert areas from all the dirt and dust. And then notice what Jesus says, knowing that history about the city, notice what he says when he's telling them to repent and come to him. Notice the similarities that are in the natural. You say, I am rich, and have acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you don't know that you're wretched, poor, pitiful. And then in verse 18, he says, I counsel you. Here's my advice. 
You're famous for that black wool clothing that's so beautiful, so valuable. I encourage you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. Forget about the banking industry. Forget about your banking accounts. That's not what's important. Gold refined in the fire. And then notice it says, and white clothes to wear. I know you're famous for that fancy black wool clothing, but I encourage you, clothes that are white so you can cover your shameful nakedness. The spiritual dimension, the spiritual rebuke that he is giving them. And notice then he too, he goes right to the salve to put on their eyes so you can really see. God rebukes and disciplines those he loves. We need to remember that as a church. We need to remember that as individuals. And we need to remember that when he might be rebuking someone other than us that we know or are close to so that we're not quick to judge and criticize at what something God is doing to build something in that person. It really, can be really discouraging when, when I'm going through something and God's in the process of disciplining or rebuking correcting, getting you back on track, maybe, maybe trying to remove something from my life that needs to be removed so my focus gets back where it should be. And all of a sudden, somebody with maybe good intention comes up and says, Brother, what's wrong with you? I can see the anointing's no longer with you. You got sin in your life? What's going on? Well, that may all be true. But the reality could be God is just drawing me to himself. He's giving me gold refined by fire. That the clothing that I would wear would be white, pure, his holiness, his righteousness. Doing something that I can see correctly what I need to be seeing instead of the deceptions that I can easily buy into. The deceptions of the world. And again, I think it's so encouraging. Even this church, he says, repent. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. I'm just knocking on that door. I'm letting you know I'm here. I'm here for you. I've not spewed you out. I've not vomited you yet. I want you to repent. All you had to do is get back to relationship with me. Discover who I am as your personal Lord and Savior. And when you do that, he uses the picture of coming in, and I will come in and sup with you. I will come in and eat with you. A picture of intimacy and fellowship. That's what God wants for each one of us. And we never need it worse than we're going through those trials and tests where it's so easy to lose focus. It's so easy to remember that he's with us always. It's so easy to remember that he knows what's going on and he's really in control, even when we don't understand. It's so easy to get in the flesh and think we can fix it or we can change it. But we can't. We need to trust him and keep our eyes on him. He's always there, always waiting for us, knocking on the door, wanting us to return to him. And that was the end of his message to the churches, all seven churches. That was the end of chapter 3 in the book of Revelation. And in chapter 4, all of a sudden, there's an amazing change. You know, in verse 
19, chapter 1. If you recall, it, it kind of laid out three divisions for us right there, or if you would, a three-point outline of the whole book of Revelation, a very simple one. It, the Revelation 1.19, it says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Clear three different divisions. Chapter 1, what you have seen. Chapter 2, the things that are, the seven churches, actual churches that we've just finished talking about. And then he goes on and starts in chapter 4. And it goes on through the rest of the book of Revelation. He says, these things that will take place after these things. It's a future thing. It's a future events. And we're going to see a lot in the next 15, 16 chapters. And if you read Revelation and you've read Revelation, you're going to read a lot that you're going to scratch your head and go, what the heck is that? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've read it in the last four weeks since I last was in church. And every time I read it, I find myself scratching my head and I go, really, do you think that's really what it means? And not everybody agrees, which, of course, can bring confusion if you let it. In these verses... We're going to see in chapters 4 through 19, we're going to see that the primary focus, today we're going to get a glimpse into heaven, but the primary focus of those chapters is God's judgment and God's pouring out his wrath. And I just want to say, we're, we're heading to Easter when we remember and are reminded and we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In the last few years, and I hope to do it again this year, I share a message about the cup of God's wrath. And sometimes we think of the word wrath, and we know it sounds bad, and it probably is bad, and it might hurt a lot and be painful. But as we look through the book of Revelation, we see a picture of the wrath of God that's poured out. And it's horrible. It's horrible. But the reality is it's not as horrible as hell. Eternity separated from him. So I think it's good that we're where we're at in Revelation as we approach Easter. But today we're not going to focus so much on that. What we're going to see as we jump into chapter 4 is John between the end of chapter 3 and verse 1 of chapter 4, he is taken up into heaven. And the whole scene changes from earth to heaven. The location is different. And we're going to see what I believe is what I would call, or most people call, the rapture of the church. As we go through chapters 4 through 19, the word church is not used once. John is taken up, he's called up into heaven. Lots of people disagree on that point, just so you're aware of that. But I believe the rapture takes place right here in in chapter 4 before we get to chapter 6 where the wrath of God begins to be poured out. And as I said, we can disagree and still love each other. There's plenty in there to agree on that we might disagree about. So looking in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. 
I want to read just verse 1 and part of verse 2. It says, after these things, after what things? After he had spoke to the churches and he had given John the seven letters to give to the seven churches. After these things, I looked and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. I don't know what that looked like. All I know is he went through the door. I know Jesus is called the door. It may have been a door, a portal, whatever you want to call it. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit. After these things, he was finished dealing with the churches on the earth at that time. And as I said, churches aren't mentioned again in the next 16 chapters. The first voice it could mean a couple of things. If you remember in, in uh, chapter 1, the first voice was that of Jesus. So he could be making reference to that first voice that's now speaking to me again. Or it simply could mean the first voice that he heard at this new location in heaven. I personally think it was Jesus, but it could be either. It doesn't matter that much. And he saw the door standing open. And notice the the voice was like the sound of a trumpet. And we hear in that phrase about Jesus and his return. And we read it in different books, the prophetic books in the Old Testament, even as well as we read it in the New Testament. There is a voice like a trumpet. I know one thing. If you blow a trumpet in this room, it's going to be loud and it's going to be clear. And we can hear it over everything else when it's blown. And I think that's the kind of the point. There is going to be a voice, and he heard it as clear as could be. And it was got his attention immediately. And it, what it said to us, come up here. He was called up. It wasn't come on up if you want. I think I'll bring you up. It's come on up. His church is going to be called up. It's going to be a command to come on up. And I'll show you what must take place after these things. So he is going to see what's going to happen. But first, he's going to give us a picture of what he sees in heaven. And I think today that's really all we're going to really focus on is what did he see when he was in heaven? There's different places in Scripture. It talks about heaven some, but we don't get a lot of information about heaven. And when we do get some of the information about heaven, it's a little symbolic, so we're not even sure what it means. We'll just wait till we read about some of these creatures. It's like, huh? Science fiction's got nothing over the Word of God. But we get to see what he is saying. And, and I want us to notice right away what draws his attention more than anything else. What's in heaven? You could compare in 1 Thessalonians a couple of different places, chapter 4, chapter 1. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. You can put the slide up. But I wanted to just point out some of the similarities. Like in verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God. Then we who alive remain will be caught up after the dead are raised. In chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, it says this, and he's talking to the Thessalonian people, the Thessalonian church, and he says, how you turn to God from idols and you serve a living and true God 
and to wait for his son from heaven who he has raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath is to come. And see, there's some of the scriptures that I look at that help me to draw the conclusion that I believe the church has taken out pre-tribulation. But I always acknowledge there are other scriptures that people would use to say post-trib. And there's some that would say mid-trib. And some don't know that it's even going to be a tribulation. They think it's already over or happened or we're in it. So you decide. But I believe there's a pattern here that is significant that we see when Jesus finishes dealing with the church on earth, when he finishes with the seven letters to the church on earth, John is called up into heaven by a voice that sounds like a trumpet. I think this takes place immediately before the tribulation of wrath of God is poured out, as we'll see in chapter 6. And I do believe, as I've said a couple of times already, I think it is significant that nowhere in the next 15 verses is the word church mentioned. Nowhere. But smarter people than me disagree with me. So some of you probably do too. That would have been a good place for an amen for some of you. (laughs) And it says in the spirit. And some people make a big deal out of what that means. I'm going to tell you what I know about that. I don't know anything about that for sure. We know he's already in the spirit if you go back to chapter 1. It says he was in the spirit. He was in the spirit when God gave him the vision and told him what to write down. It says he was in the spirit, but now he says he's in the spirit. I I do believe there must have been something different there, but I don't know what it is for sure. I don't know whether he was literally taken into heaven or he was allowed to see into the heaven through that open door. I don't know. And for me, that's okay. It doesn't matter that I don't know for sure because I can count on what he saw. It doesn't matter to me how much or how, so much how he saw it. And that's the important thing to me when we have these different ideas and different opinions. Um, okay, but do we agree that he saw what he saw? And I think that's what's important here. Starting in, in verse 2, it says, immediately I was in the Spirit, and then it says, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. And there was one sitting on that throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in the appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments. And golden crowns were upon their head. The first thing that he notices in heaven is the throne. He even mentions the throne before he mentions the fact that there's someone sitting on the throne. His attention is drawn to the throne, and as we go through the rest of Revelation, we're going to see the throne is always the focus. And everything else proceeds out from the throne of God. The fact that there is a throne in heaven and there is an occupant on it, and you'll notice he doesn't tell us a whole lot about the occupant. He doesn't say, boy, he's about 28 feet tall. Crown so big you couldn't ever... He doesn't tell us any of that. What he tells us is what he sees in the appearance. And we see that whoever the occupant is, and and we can be certain as we go forward it's God, that, that all he can see is like the glory of God. 
He says here, it was like Sardis in color. Sardius, if you would. Which is believed to be a reference to a very red stone, which would seem to be symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ. We also see that he, as he's talking about the throne, he talks about this jasper. And most people agree that it is a very white, clear stone. Possibly could be a reference to diamond. The clear diamond, the light, the bright, clear, almost white light mixed with the bright sardis or red light emanating from the throne. He's not telling us about the occupant. He's just saying, this is all I can see. And then he says it's as if there's a rainbow around the throne of God, emerald green in color. You know, it can almost get a picture. And there's a lot of pictures that you can go online and see, and none of them do it justice, I'm sure. But the, the, the rainbow, I believe, is a clear picture for us of the covenant of God. We have a God, an occupant on that throne. He's sitting on the throne. It's a picture of his authority. He is God. He is the authority. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. A sovereign ruler of the universe that can do anything he wants. And yet he has this emerald emerald rainbow, which I believe is clearly a picture of the covenant, which tells me this, that even though he is the sovereign God of the universe, he will not do anything to violate his covenant. And his covenant to us should be something that is so important to us. The promises of the new covenant that we have through Jesus Christ. The promises that we have that that he will never ever leave us nor forsake us. That when we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior because of the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. There is no guilt. There's no room for shame or condemnation. This is all part of that new covenant, the benefits that we have. And we could go on and on about the benefits that we have. In Psalms 103, where it tells us, don't forget the benefits. There is healing in the atonement, all those things. And God says, I believe through the picture that we see of the throne, as John describes it, he is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants, but he will not violate his covenant with his people so we can stand on his promises and be sure. A sovereign God could decide he doesn't love you, but his covenant says, I will love you and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. A sovereign God could do anything he wants. Theoretically, he could change his mind anytime he wants, but he will not violate his covenant with his children, with his people, with his church. And he goes on and talks, and I'm not going to spend hardly any time on this right now, but around the throne, he also then sees the 24 other thrones. And each throne really is beneath or, or under the throne that God is sitting upon. And there, and there, are, there are 24 elders. They're referred to as elders. And once again, there's all kinds of debate or observation or assumptions as what these 24 elders are. One that you might have heard before is, well, the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel, whoever those people are, and plus the 12 disciples of the New Testament. But there's a whole lot of other things that people say those 24 are. Some just say they simply are a representation of the 24 represent the entirety of the body of Christ. 
I don't know which of those is true. Kind of like the picture that it's the entirety of the body of Christ. Like I like the picture of the seven churches representing the church in general. But again, what they are and what they truly represent exactly is insignificant to the significance of what they do, what they sing when they sing a song in chapter 5, what they do with their crowns. Insignificant to the fact that they, whoever they are, acknowledge whatever they are, whatever authority they have, whatever gifts they have, whatever talents they had, they all come from God. And they worship God. And they will cast their crowns before his throne, acknowledging that he is king of kings, Lord of lords. So again, when we get into those areas where everybody has an opinion, that's okay. As long as you can base it on the word of God somehow. But there are things that we can acknowledge that we agree upon. Whoever they are, they are in awe of God. The lightnings and the thunders that we're going to read about emanating from the throne of God are there, I believe, to give us an awe and wonder and a sense of just who this is who sits upon the throne. And even as we look at all these things and we see all these amazing descriptions about this almighty God and how they're bowing down before him in heaven and all these things we're going to be reading about to remind ourselves once again that he's your father. He loves you. You're the most precious crown jewel of all his creation. That's the God we serve. That's the God we can put our hope and trust and confidence in. We serve a God that is able in all things. We serve a God who loves you no matter what, if you've accepted him as your heavenly father. We serve a God who promises that all things will work out for good for those who believe. Even though we're in the midst of something that we're trying to shake our head and scratch our head and we're questioning and we're wondering, we know we have a God who loves us and he's good. And yet he is this magnificent God that even, even in John's view into heaven, he couldn't really see him because of the glory that surrounded him and the light that shines so bright around him. And you and I get to call him Father. Abba, Father. Amazing thing to know that a creator that spoke all things into being loves you that much. Loves me that much. In spite of me. An amazing thought. Just a little bit more in conclusion with these first few verses. He mentions the white garments. Again, I believe the white garments give to us a picture of the righteousness of Christ that's given for us, given to us. We put on the cloak of his righteousness, the white, the symbol of purity, and their crowns, golden crowns. We know that the crown would be representative of authority, and the elders all have one. And the Bible lets me know that I've got one too. And so will you. Because we are promised that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That we will rule and reign with him. But also acknowledging the fact that anything we have, are, or will ever have is because of him. And like the 24 elders, we need to always be willing to cast our crown before the throne. 
There's a picture, an illustration I want to just close with right there that in Roman times, the Roman emperor would have many kings scattered out throughout the Roman Empire. And then periodically, he would call all these kings to come to Rome. And they would all bring their crowns. And you can probably guess what they did to their crowns. When they got before the emperor, they all took their crowns off and laid it at the feet of the emperor, acknowledging that no matter what rule they had, no matter what authority they had, it was all under the authority of the emperor of Rome. And then the emperor would give the crowns back to them. And I think there may be an allusion to that even here, that always willing to lay down our crowns. And as we humble ourselves before him and worship him, he's always ready to say, pick up that crown. You're my son, you're my daughter, you're a joint heir with Christ. We're going to stop there this week and we'll continue on, I believe, next week. Lord willing. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I again come to you with humility knowing that I need your revelation for these things that we can only imagine. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just continue to draw us and teach us that we would grow in awe and wonder of who you are and that we would grow in our our realization of who we are in your eyes, how precious we are in your sight, that we would never believe those lies that somehow we're not lovable or we're not good enough, or somehow we've made such mistakes that you've cast us aside. Your word says you stand at the door of our heart and you knock. All I have to do is open it and you will come in and fellowship with us. Lord, I thank you that your word gives us all of these instructions and all of these truths. And I pray you would help us to understand them and live them in our own lives. I pray you would continue to draw us to your word as you draw us to yourself. Lord, I also pray now for Emily in that hospital room in Sioux Falls. Pray for her parents and their siblings. God, we continue to pray for a miracle of healing in her body, in her lungs. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. And there are many others that are struggling physically, Lord. We just continue to pray and look at you as Jehovah Rapha, the one who heals. And we will trust in you. Now I pray, God, wherever we go, You would go before us. We would be sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit. We would become so familiar with your voice. We would be uncomfortable if we couldn't hear it. And you would give us the grace to respond. Watch over us and protect us and keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.